Welcome to the Alpha Human Podcast. I am your host, Lawrence Rosenberg. Our guest today is Eric Maddox. Eric is a former U.S. Army Staff Sergeant who was an infantry paratrooper for the 82nd Airborne. After spending three years as a paratrooper, jump master, and a qualified ranger, Eric became an interrogator and Chinese Mandarin linguist and would go on to work with the Defense Intelligence Agency where, in 2003, he was assigned to a Delta Force Special Operations team in Iraq where he conducted over 300 interrogations and collected the very intelligence which directly led to the capture of Saddam Hussein. As a result, he was awarded the Legion of Merit, the Defense Intelligence Agency's Director's Award, and the National Intelligence Medal of Achievement. He was later hired as a civilian to work with the Department of Defense, conducting over 2,700 interrogations while deploying eight times in support of the global war on terror, including multiple tours in Iraq, Afghanistan, South America, Southeast Asia, and Europe. Eric retired from service in 2014 and is now a private consultant and negotiator where he helps corporations, universities, sports teams, and CEOs master the art of questioning, negotiations, and information gathering. Eric is also the author of a phenomenal book, Mission Blacklist Number One, the inside story of the search for Saddam Hussein. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lawrence. Great to have you on. I'll tell you right now, I read the book and it reads like a thriller because the fact that you actually started interrogating in a completely unorthodox way and then started picking up and sensing leads like a hound dog, uh, you, you, you were like a dog with a bone. You wouldn't let go and you kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And every time you get close to someone who's like intimately involved with Saddam Hussein, it's almost like they pull you away and then you get close and you get pulled away. Uh, and the fact that you actually ended up being the guy that, I mean, let's, let's put cards on the table. You're the one who found him. Okay. Uh, and at the end, everyone recognized that, but the reality is it's a phenomenal story. So it's a privilege and an honor to have you on the, on the Alpha Human Podcast. Thank you for your service. I'm excited to get into your story. Thank you, Lawrence. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay, so let, how about this? Let's start off with a quote from the book, okay? So, it had been four days since I first arrived in Iraq, landing at the military base at Baghdad International Airport, along with my friend and fellow interrogator, Lee. We had been assigned together in the Defense Intelligence Agency for almost two years, and at that time, Lee had earned a reputation as a top-notch interrogator. But for me, this was the first real shot I'd have at doing the job I signed up for back in 1999. Since then, I'd never had the chance to even question a prisoner. This time, I was determined to make the most of the opportunity, and from almost the moment I landed, I got to work interrogating the detainees in the prison built in an airport hangar on the base. So, Eric, setting the scene there, all right, let's, let's now take it back a notch 
Before we get into your time in Iraq, let's start with your journey to joining the army and becoming an interrogator. How did all of this come about? What led you up to that moment? What led you to get into this career of being an interrogator? Right, great question, Lauren. So I enlisted in 1994. I, like a lot of young Americans, I had a sense of patriotism. I'm 22 years old. I just graduated from the University of Oklahoma, but I just didn't feel like a normal job, a corporate job would kind of scratch that itch for my love of the country. So I okay. enlisted and I enlisted to be an infantryman. And I thought that would be great. And they had this 82nd Airborne Division and I was afraid of everything, right? Like I'm afraid of heights. <laughs> I never shot a gun. I wasn't the army type, but I thought, you know, I'm just gonna go and serve my country. So I enlisted as an infantryman, Airborne School, 82nd Airborne Division. But really my goal was to graduate Ranger School. And I worked hard at the 82nd, got prepared, got into Ranger School past ranger school, became a squad leader, a jump master, three years. Well, while I'm in the infantry, my unit, 82nd, spent five months in Panama. Okay. And they were about, this is the late 90s, they're about to turn over the canal, I think, to the Panamanian government. They were worried there might be some riots. They put a unit down, they put a battalion down there. Well, while I'm down there, I took high school, well, in high school, I'd taken Spanish. Okay. I wasn't very good at it. But when I was in Panama, I realized, hey, I can, I can pick up this foreign language. It's, it's very intriguing. And I learned the United States military has a foreign language program. So when we got back to Panama, I took the test. I said, hey, you might be good at learning foreign languages. Pick the one you want. And I thought, the hardest one's Chinese Mandarin. Mm. How cool is that, right? So I enlisted to become a Chinese Mandarin linguist. Well, when you enlist to become a Chinese Mandarin linguist, that's not an MOS. It's not a military occupational specialty. So you could be an interrogator and the kind of recruiter or the re-enlistment NCO said, we don't use interrogators. You're going to be an intelligence collector against China if you learn Chinese Mandarin. So I enlisted for five more years. They sent me to Defense Language Institution. I learned Chinese Mandarin. They sent me to Beijing working at a, for the defense attache in Beijing. Then they signed me to Los Angeles, California, and I'm working as an intelligence collection officer against the Chinese in my Chinese language, interviewing Chinese scientists and researchers on all things Chinese intelligence. Okay. Well, during this time, we have 9-11. We go to war, global war on terrorism. They send a bunch of people to Afghanistan, and they start taking these trained interrogators from these target countries and sending them to, to them to Afghanistan. So can you Pashtu or Farsi, you go to Afghanistan. They would go to war in Iraq, and they start sending the Arabic interrogators to Iraq to support the war, but they tell me, you're Chinese Mandarin, you're never going to war. Three months into the war in Iraq, I'm stationed in Los Angeles, again, highly unexpected, top secret orders to go to Baghdad. And it's in 10 days, my commander says, it's just you, and they're sending Lee. And we thought, my buddy, he was a Marine gunny, right? Wow. He's that experienced interrogator. Marines, you know, they've done interrogations in the Pacific or whatever. Okay. So we, we don't know what we're doing. I mean, we don't know where we're going. They send us to Baghdad, the Baghdad International Airport. And we knew something was up, Lawrence, because we are picked up by these soldiers. They're not wearing uniforms. And they have beards. I got a beard now. You didn't have beards in the military. That's right. <laughs> they took us in these really 
close quarter, you know, barricaded off little bitty compound at the Baghdad International Airport, bring us in this room and they were like, you're now with JSON. And I'm like, I don't even know, is that a word? I don't even know. <laughs> and they're like, it's a Joint Special Operations Command. <laughs> That's cool. I have no idea what that is. And they laid it out, Joint Special Operations Command. Task force responsible for tracking down, tracking down the most wanted people in the world. Most wanted man in the world is Saddam Hussein. He's the ace of spades. And I'm telling to, I'm a Chinese Mandarin linguist. Right. What on earth am I doing here? <laughs> and they explained, they said, we are the interrogators for the Joint Special Operations Command, but we have Delta teams out there and they want to have interrogators capable of going out on raids. They said, so we made this real simple. We called the army and said, give us a list of every single army interrogator who's former infantry. And they said, just in case, let's make sure they're a graduate of ranger school. Ah. They said there was one interrogator on the list. Wow. That's how I got the back there. Well, I'll tell you what, that's, that, that's amazing because you were itching to get in on the action. And as a, a Chinese uh, linguist and uh, interrogator uh, with that background, there was no way you were getting in on the action. And then suddenly, you know, you got pulled out of a hat, but they made the right choice uh, apparently without knowing it. Um, so what kind of formal training did you receive to become an interrogator? When I enlisted to become a Chinese Mandarin linguist interrogator, you go to language school, Mm -hmm. Then they send you to eight weeks, eight weeks, that's it, of interrogation training for Watch Youth Arizona. And I will admit, I wasn't very good at the training. I didn't like the training. And mm -hmm. I'm not knocking the training, but I'm knocking the training. Right. I, I, to me, I didn't think it worked. I got through that training and said, there's no way that would make me break. But I got through the training. But I will tell you, it was much more difficult to get through language school. Not that languages are hard. Yes, languages are hard. Mm -hmm. It was a priority for the military to create linguists. But we had gone so long since we had had interrogations. When I went through the course in 1999, so right before 9-11, that several years after Vietnam, it was just not a priority to actually teach you how to interrogate. Right. So that was all the training I'd received. Now, once you get, you know, yep, you check the standard. You're a Chinese major linguist. We're going to focus on Chinese intelligence collection. All, every, all of my focus, my mindset, all my work was as an intelligence collection officer on China. Nothing, I didn't even cross my mind to do interrogations. Wow. Uh, unbelievable. Um, so, and, and it, you know, it's where did you grow up, by the way? Also, that's right. So in the book, you talk about that, you know, your team, of course, uh, you know, the Sooners. But you've got the um, you know, you've got uh, and I don't know if you learned it on the mean streets of Tulsa, but you seem to have a, a street sensibility. You seem to have what's called street smarts. Uh, so you're going through these, uh, you know, uh, you're going through these interrogation courses and you're like, that would ne that would, you know, it's going to make me break. And it's interesting that you would think that because you start to find your own pace, your own cadence as you start interrogating. We'll get into that. But, um, you know, it's apparent you had a different sensibility. Um, 
So let's set the scene. Okay. Um, major combat operations during the invasion of Iraq officially ended on May 1st, 2003. However, violence steadily rose as an insurgency of sorts began to foment. Now I'm going to quote from an article entitled Our Place in History. We got him. The anniversary of the capture of Saddam Hussein. Now that's by the Defense Intelligence Agency uh, and their public affairs department. They put out this, this article uh, and it features you basically. So here's the quote. In the summer and fall, insurgents and terrorists conducted a spate of bomb attacks against high profile targets in Baghdad, including the Jordanian embassy, the UN headquarters and the headquarters of the International Red Cross. Coalition troops also became the target of violence as insurgents developed and employed increasingly sophisticated IEDs. As a result, by the end of 2003, 408 coalition troops were killed. U.S. occupation authorities viewed these attacks as the last gasp of former regime dead-enders and therefore felt confident that the insurgency could be nipped in the bud if... Saddam and other leading figures of the old regime who were still on the loose could be brought to justice. Saddam's sons, Uday and Qusay, were killed in a firefight on July 22, 2003. Now, if only Saddam Hussein, the ace of spades, could be apprehended, it would break the back of the insurgency and allow the rapid transformation of Iraq into a peaceful and stable democracy, or so the thinking went. But the trail was cold. And weeks turned into months as coalition forces searched for Saddam in vain. And into that is thrust Eric Maddox. That's not from the article. That's me speaking. So this is where you enter the fray. The whole, the, all the leads have gone cold. The trail has gone cold. There's an insurgency. People are getting killed left and right. Violence is on the rise. If you don't find Saddam, who knows, you know, which way this thing goes. Did you have any idea? what you were walking into? No, absolutely not. I mean, it would be so easy to speculate or to look back 17 years later and go, you know, I had a strategy, I had a plan. <laughs> Listen, I'm a staff sergeant, I'm 31. I've been wearing suits in Los Angeles talking to Chinese scientists. I get to Baghdad and they tell me I'm part of this task force. Only thing on my mind is don't screw this up. Just don't screw this. Not me. Don't screw up the capture Saddam. Like, don't upset somebody so bad that you get sent out of there. And anybody who's been a part of JSOC knows you look at somebody the wrong way and you're gone. You say the wrong thing. I mean, it is a tightrope for a newbie, right? Right. So my thing is like, I don't even know what to do. I'm just going to be cool. Right? Like, I'm just, I'm going to stay below the radar. That was my only goal. Uh, really, that was my only goal. Now, things progress quickly. Like, I know me. And I'm not going to sit around and be a nobody for a long time. But, mm -hmm. but at first, I just didn't want to get kicked off the pastor. Wow. Uh, so, you know, you, you obviously played your cards correctly. You, you know, you clearly had a sense of a, a, a very keen sense of emotional intelligence because you're right. You know, you're, you're now assigned, you get a shot. Um, well, here's, let me, let me tell the story. 
Um, and then I'll let you pick it up. In, in June of 2003, not long after you arrived in Baghdad, I mean, I, it might have been, what's that? July of 2003. Yeah, in Oh, July of, sorry, July of 2000. Literally the day after they killed Uday and Kuse. When I showed up off the plane in order to get my in-briefing with the task force, they yeah. showed us the bodies of Uday and Kuse. And Welcome. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> you guys aren't messing around. Wow. Welcome to Iraq. Welcome to Baghdad. Um, so, okay. So you get in, you get the briefing. You, you see the bodies of uh, of Kuse and, uh, and Uday uh, and like you're like, let me not screw this up. And like literally, again, I don't know if it's like the same day or a couple of days later, you get requested to go along on a hit. Yes. OK. And uh, these are the raids that were conducted in Baghdad, uh, in Baghdad to search for high value targets and round up suspected insurgents. Now, you hadn't even been beyond the perimeter of the airport at this point. But obviously, you're eager to get outside the wire for the first time. Was there, you know, I know you were just coming from uh, being in a suit, uh, you know, speaking to Chinese scientists. But were there, did you ever have any specialized training to be an, to be an interrogator attached to a hit? Or was it like OJT, on-the-job training, like, you know, make, you know, just kind of learn as you go? So there's never, ever any training on a raid to do interrogations on a raid. There was never an idea that an interrogator would go on a raid. That's never even thought of. Now it's thought of more now, because I mean, okay. I ended up going over my career, I went on 200 combat raids. But at the time, and there was no idea that you're actually gonna do an interrogation. You right. might go to a war, but to go on a raid, never a possibility. I was there four days when they actually went up had that raid. They sent me to Tukrit. They, there was a Delta Force team in Tukrit that says, hey, get us an interrogator up here. We're not getting the love, right? We, we're not getting the resources. And this team of interrogators who have been there forever, they, had, they, they we, I always say, it benefited me that I was former infantry. I was Ranger qualified. I had graduated Ranger school. So they're sending the right guy to Tukrit, right? Let's okay. be honest here, Lawrence. Nobody thought Saddam Hussein was in Tukrit. These interrogators on this team in Baghdad wanted to be there. They wanted to interrogate Saddam. They were certain Saddam was in Baghdad. The, the bulk of the operators were in Baghdad. Okay. So there's a request to send a guy to Tukrit, Iraq. Send a new guy. <laughs> there's nothing in Tukrit. Gotcha. That's why I got sent there. Wow. Uh, it's just, and, and, you know, I, want, I wanted to set the scene the way it is because – it, the story's even more amazing, given that, like, you know, you're going in there totally green, no training. You don't want to screw it up. The training you did get, you didn't even think was that good. Um, you know, the trail went cold. You know, no one thinks, yeah, everyone thinks Saddam's hiding out somewhere in Baghdad. Like, you're the least likely person at this stage that anyone, if they were going to put money down on it, it doesn't matter what odds were given, you're not the guy that's going to catch Saddam Hussein. No. And, uh, you know, and I should preface, by the way, al along the way, uh, it's not because you hit the lottery. This is all the result of 300 interrogations and some real keen sense of, of getting a strategy. So let's 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 clear up a few things as well first. So, as you said, you get a shot to go to Tikrit uh, to run your first interrogation. Mm -hmm. Now, Tikrit was known, actually, for being intensely loyal to Saddam. 
uh, even after the right, even after the fall of the regime and during the insurgency, Tikrit seemed to retain its status as having a network of power and influence. Can I ask why was Tikrit a hub for loyalists, and why did it remain a center of influence during this whole episode in history? For the first year, Tikrit citizens had that loyalty because Saddam was there. He kept his power because of his presence. They didn't see him, right. but they felt him. That's number one. Number two, because he is from Tikrit, and so many of these individuals are distant, distant, distant cousins or direct cousins of Saddam, if they lose this war, they're dead. If the Shias take over, we may be able to forgive some Sunnis. We're not forgetting, forgiving you in Tikrit. This is, this is their Alamo. So I don't know how much the loyalty was love of Saddam, but it was fear of Saddam, but this reality if they lose this war, they're dead. Wow. Okay. Well, that puts it in perspective. Um, so, all right. From the book, right? Um, quote, the Iraqi police had arrested Nasir Yasin Omar al-Muslit. I knew only too well who the new prisoner was. Aside from being still another al-Muslit, Nasir was an inner circle bodyguard. He was reputed to be one of the last people seen with Saddam at the start of the war. He was also, of course, well-connected with the Hamaya chain of command. He was the brother of Faris Yassin, who was supposedly running the insurgency group around Al-Alam and was the cousin of several other high-ranking Al-Muslits. I knew Nasir could give me invaluable information on the inner workings of the Hamaya. So, two questions. Number one. What was the Hamaya? They're called Hamaya. That is Saddam. The, the word means bodyguard. Okay. It is Saddam's bodyguard network. Saddam okay. Hussein had a couple hundred bodyguards on any given Sunday. He had three levels of bodyguards. He had inner circle, second circle, third circle. Inner circle were the most powerful ones. There were 32 inner circle bodyguards. So he always had 32. They ran shifts of 16. If you were going to be a trusted man of Saddam Hussein, you were, you know, it's one of these 32 inner circles. Nasser Yassin. So you may be correct pronouncing it right. The way they pronounced me, Nasser Yassin Omar Musa. Nasser Yassin okay. was an inner circle bodyguard. Okay. Great, great. So the inner circle were made up of 32 bodyguards um the the entire group was maybe as high as 200 yes okay so who were the al muslits al muslits were a family of saddam relatives and they just had a high number of the adult males were bodyguards inner circle they're even seven second circle and they even stumbled across a few outer circle third circle bodyguards but just happened to be one of those families. You know, some families have a bunch of firemen or cops or whatever. This family had a bunch of bodyguards. Gotcha. So, okay, so here's the interesting thing. You figured out early on that this legion of bodyguards were a crucial piece of the puzzle when it came to the power structure at play in the insurgency that was unfolding in Iraq. 
white and no one else really got this or mo- almost no one else got this and certainly up the chain. Why did this become so obvious to you, but seem like an afterthought to everyone else? You know, so I don't know that it was just me saying the bodyguards mattered. Okay. We knew bodyguards. The problem was this. When Saddam's in power for 30 years and there's bodyguards coming in and out of positions, middle, inner, outer circles, mm-hmm. it's, and only people from Tikrit were his bodyguards, this whole city is bodyguards. The difference was when I arrived, they had no idea who were the inner circle 30. And then there was a dynamics within those, within the 32, who actually had power, who didn't. And, and not, so it was really this diagram that says, wait a second, this city is basically a bodyguard city, but who's relevant? And there was a problem when Uday and Kusei were killed, they were killed. Kusei's driver, his that driver that was killed with Kusei, mm-hmm. his uncle was a big timer, big name. His name is Muhammad Hadoshi yeah. in Tukri. <laughs> Muhammad right. Hadoshi became the lead focus. And the idea was if Muhammad Hadoshi's nephew was killed with Uday and Kusei, Muhammad Hadoshi must be with Saddam, and that's the connection. That because Saddam okay. is going to be communicating with his sons. So gotcha. I get there. All this focus is on this Hadoshi clan. And he had a cool name. Like people love saying Hadoshi. And I know you're like, you gotta be kidding me. Our intelligence is driven by names. I'm telling you, some stupid stuff happens in the world. So it was it was really just kind of wading through the smoke saying, why do we think this Hadoshi guy matters? Wait a second. We have thousands of bodyguards or former bodyguards. Who matters now? And that our Muslim clan matters now. And that's the key. When you're tracking high-value targets, not finding the target, the problem is clearing all the smoke and all the mud. I cannot tell you how many people on a daily basis would come to the front gate and say, I know Saddam's, I know Saddam. There's $25 million bounty on Saddam. You've got everyone else. I know where it is. I, I mean, they're loyal, but if I can get 25 mil, you know. That's look, right. I'm not afraid of that either. So it's clearing the muck and going, this is where we focus. Got you. Yeah, you, may, you do talk a lot about that in the book uh, and focus on the fact that everyone seems to be looking over here you know, Hadoshi, 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 uh, but there's something else going on. So, all right, I'm going to quote from the book here. There was no reason to think that I had any special qualifications to be an interrogator for the task force in Tikrit. From the first night of the raid, it had begun to dawn on me that getting good intelligence was going to require a different set of skills than those that I'd learned in interrogation school. Okay. So what type? So now it's starting to dawn on you. I'm, you're going to need a different set of skills. You already said, "Hey, I didn't think that the 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 teaching that I got was going to you know really amount to much." So what type of skills did you start to realize that you're going to need to access or to to learn? Okay, great question. The first couple. Of, the first problem is this: the army interrogation techniques are based on having a soldier 
from the enemy warfare with chain command, captured off the battlefield in a uniform. These were insurgent fighters. We had no information on them. Mm. Any information we had was leads from informants. A, we couldn't tell them what information we had because that would give up the information of the informant. And B, most of the informants just wanted money and most of the information they gave to us was a lie. So there was plausible deniability that every one of our prisoners was innocent. So now I didn't have any, you will tell me or you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison because we didn't have any information. That was right. number, one. number two, when you're in a military, enemy military with structure, if I get you to break, you can tell me the structure of your military, the future missions, the chain of command. When you're an insurgent, the day you're captured, everything, everyone around you and your insurgency, when they find out you're captured, they're changing their location. They're mm. changing their plans. So I can't just get a prisoner cooperative enough to say, all right, here's what I know. I didn't do it. Lawrence, I have to get a prisoner to go. I want to help you so much, Eric, that I'm going to speculate what they're going to do next. I can't guarantee it, but I'm going to lead you forward based on what they, what I know of them. This is not fact. This is my speculation. And that, that is a different level of intelligence. No doubt about it. Wow. Um, yeah, no, that really is a whole different level of uh, awareness that, that one needs to have to play in that field. So, all right, here's another quote from the book. One of the first in-depth and intense interrogations that you did for the task force was Rafi Idam Ibrahim Al-Hassan Al-Takridi, long name, a former lieutenant colonel in the Iraqi army. But after the interrogation, you uncovered that he was closely related to Saddam. Right. A nephew, in fact, whose father was Saddam's oldest and dearest stepbrother, who was like a father to Saddam. One of the points you mentioned during Rafi's interrogation is this. Here's the quote. In any interrogation, one of the primary purposes is to establish guilt. It was more than convincing yourself that the person you were questioning was a bad guy. You had to convince him of the fact that he was a bad guy. Explain that. Okay, so that's a great question. Let me just make very clear, because that's exactly what I meant to write, but I want to make sure we track on what I'm saying here, okay? Mm -hmm. I sit here with Rafi Idhan, right? I know, I know that prison. I'm trying to prove that he's a bad guy, which is things that he's done in the past, people who you're related to, information, right? And it's his word versus my word. What I have to do is I have to prove within that box, that interrogation box, that he's a bad guy. Now, that's a different ballgame. How do you do that? I mean, short of him going, yes, I'm a bad guy. It's his word versus my word, and I have no actual proof. So what I have to do is say, Rocky, what makes a bad guy? Well, Eric, I mean, you know, bad people lie. But you would never lie to me, right? No, I'd never tell you. But if you did, Eric, you can kill me. I can't kill you, Rocky, but obviously if you lie to me, you're not, I mean, that, Eric, if I tell you a lie. Now, what did I just do there? I said, I don't care what you did in the past. I care right now, did you lie to me? That's a completely different ballgame. I know people are like, whatever, that's not different to me. Oh, it is. 
I don't have to prove what he did in the past. I have to prove he's lying going to lie to me right now. Now what I can, all I have to do is get you a story. My brain is able to picture somebody when they use words and they, they build these stories. I can put them in a puzzle and I can build that puzzle and I can find the overlapping where that puzzle has discrepancies, smudges, put him, capture him in a corner, back him into a line. And then I'll prove to him that he lied. He did it in front of me. He knows I'm catching. And that was the new scorecard. It wasn't, the scorecard wasn't, did you do anything bad out there? Wow. Did you lie to me in here? Once I get him to say, if I lie to you one lie, you can put me in jail forever. And I capture him in, in, in that lie in front of him. Then the prisoner goes, oh, hey, let's, let's create a new scorecard. Eric, no, no, I don't, right? It's a whole different ballgame. That's what I change with interrogations. You see, why are you trying to prove stuff out there? Make this real simple. Wow. In this box, set the rules for being bad. It's a lie. Catch them in a lie. Now we're playing a different game. Yeah, wow. Uh, comp <laughs> so... So you're doing that. I mean, like, this is one of your first major interrogations and like you're sensing, I mean, you're running on instinct here, but what you're doing is picking up on some big psychological clues that, you know, most people would have to go to school for 20 years and have a lot of experience in, you know, behavioral uh, uh, psychology to really understand what's taking place here. And you're starting to see this unfold for you in real time, you, you also seem to have this weird ability because you talk about it in the book about when people would watch you interrogating someone, they'd be confused and they'd be like, what, what the hell is Eric doing? Because you'd ask people questions all over the place that to someone else would seem like, you know, this guy's scattered. He, he has no line of questioning. But what you were doing is you were able to track in your brain, okay, I got him to say that. Let me put that puzzle piece here. Let me go somewhere else. And I'll come back to that later when I need it. And you, you would, and and this would, uh, what would that would that keep your uh, detainee completely off guard as to what you what you were trying to do? No. So, so you you said a bunch of things there. I, I want to unpack it real quick. Okay. Because I love I love this topic. We could go here all night. Okay. But I want to first say I don't require somebody doesn't require twenty years of training to do what I do because I'm not speculating the psychology based on eye movement or body language or instinct. Okay. People are just too different to do that. If people think they can tell somebody's lying by the way they're acting, they're just wrong. Okay. You may be able to guess right a lot. You may even have a higher percentage. I'm telling you, that's not what I do. I use data. I use the words that come out of their mouth. That's my game, right? So, but the key to doing that is you've got to clear your mind. I've got to clear my mind of my biases, my agenda, my preconceived notions, all this stuff. I've got to clear. So when they speak to me, I take their words, that data, and I do. I place it into a puzzle into my mind. It's a picture of their world. Now, when I was talking about, I go from Z jumping around. Here's the thing. If I have a prisoner and let's say they got involved from the insurgency based on their sister's husband, so that would be their brother-in-law who they met, um, you know, they've been their brother-in-law for six years, but, you know, four months ago, they got a job working with his brother-in-law as a mechanic, and that brother-in-law makes IEDs, and so that's how they got involved, right? 
Mm-hmm. This prisoner is going to be sitting here going, I need to be honest. Just everything's cool. I have a normal job. Everything's fine. Just omit the existence of that brother-in-law. So they can either do that by removing the existence of their sister or removing maybe the existence of that job. But they're going to tell you 95% of the world's the truth. The problem is, if let's say they're going to remove the existence of that sister, right? Okay. And let's say this prisoner has two older brothers, one older sister, then that person, then their younger sister who gets married, right? And, and so if I start asking, so I say, okay, well, you know about their family. How many siblings do you have? Oh, I have five. Well, who's your oldest sibling of oh, this person? Well, who's next? And I'm like, well, we're going to get this organized, right? Well, they know, okay, tell the truth, tell the truth. He's going to get to your youngest sister and just say she doesn't exist. Okay. So what I realize is that I can have a communication conversation with somebody about their life, but I've got to step from family to job, to travel, to hobbies, to recent, to past. I do it in such a seamless manner that there's connection between my questions, but there's no theme that says, get all the brothers, find all their jobs. What are the last vehicles they have from the moment they started driving until now? That lets your prisoner know where you're going. And I skip around. Let me give you a quick example, if you don't mind. I'm talking to this prison, right? And I'm telling, if you tell me a lie, Eric, I won't tell you a lie. You can kill me. I start talking to this person. I say, how many brothers do you have? He says, I have three, right? I'm talking, talking, talking. We go on for hours. And I said, do you lie to me? No. Eric, you can get me out of here. I said, how many brothers do you have? Eric, I told you. I have three. He said, you have four. How did I do it? Well, when I'm talking to this individual, he said he has two older brothers and him and then a younger brother. I didn't go in order, but I, you know, through the conversation, I picked that up. And he also talks about when they travel, uh, if they go to a family event, if he's with an older sibling, one of his older brothers, then the oldest sibling would drive, right? And if he's ever with his younger brother, he would drive. So for some reason, the oldest sibling drives. Mm-hmm. And three years ago, we were talking about a wedding that he had of his sister. And when they go to this wedding, the two older brothers are with their spouses. They're in one vehicle. My prisoner is with his younger brother in a vehicle, yet my prisoner's riding shotgun. <laughs> I'm missing an older brother. He doesn't know he told me. Wow. He doesn't know he told me. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's next level. That that's amazing. So, I mean, you know, from the outside looking in, people just don't understand what you're doing. Yet, you're taking down some big, big clues as to what's going on there. Um, okay, so while we're talking about your techniques, how about this? Here's a quote for you. I was working purely on instinct. It was only later after a lot of trial and error that I realized I had come I had come to a critical juncture in the interrogation process. This was the plea bargaining phase. Okay? So, and this is when by the way when you were we're back to Rafi. So you get to this point in the interrogation process where you get to the plea bargaining phase. What's the plea bargaining phase? Cuz this guy ain't on trial. Right? He's, he's not on trial, but when somebody's caught, 
and they go, shoot, Eric caught me. I can spend the rest of my life in prison. What most interrogators do, and it's just such a terrible mistake, is they go, gotcha. See, you lied to me. And they try to beat them up mentally so bad that they go, you're right. Here's everything I know. And I'm like, why would you do that? Like, they know they're defeated. And they're looking at you. And they're like, oh, my goodness. There's a moment of desperation. And they're looking for hope. Now, if you give them hope, Mm -hmm. they'll take it. They'll take the bait and run. And so I'm a plea, you know, when I catch them in their line, they're like, now what are you going to do to me? They're in total defense. And I tell them, I'm going to get you out of here. You're going to walk out this door. You're going to do exactly what I tell you. They're like, I'll do whatever you say. And then you've got to take charge in terms of getting what you need. But you've got to give them that hope. It's a hopeless situation for them. But you don't want to beat them up, right? You don't want to punish them. What good does that do? I haven't got the intel yet. You've just got them vulnerable for a need. They need help. I am the need. Now I've got to take them towards that, that need. And it has to come through me. Coming through me says getting me what I want. And I've got to make sure when I say, okay, you're going to take me to other bad guys. I cannot expect them to take me to people that are going to get them identified. Right? There's, all, there's certain people that Rocky's the only one that knows where they live. If Rocky took me there, then right. they'll know this name, but they'll kill his family. Gotcha. This is where I kick it in overdrive, right? And I start saying, well, Rocky, you got to take me to these two bad guys. Like, you know who they are. You got to take me. He's like, if I take you, they'll kill my family. And I'll wait. I'll be patient. And the person, I'm telling you, inevitably, they'll go, all right, Eric, here's the deal. I can tell you, you messing with me in my mind. I don't know how you did all that. But there are bad guys you don't know about. I can tell by the way you're talking. They're, they live in a different side of town. I know exactly where they are. If I take you to them, if you go to their house and then go directly over to these guys' house, those guys know where this guy lives too. They will not know it was me because I don't think I know where they live, but I do. And if you wow. go straight to their house, no one will know it's me. Look, we just got their lives. Yes, I got the people I wanted, but I also got prisoners I bad guys I didn't even know about. That's how you use and empower prisoners. Amazing. My goal was not to break them for what I needed and what I wanted. My goal was to empower them to give me everything. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Uh, Okay. Excellent. Um, All right. So here's another one. Uh, Quote, I had learned some valuable lessons in the hours I'd spent questioning Rafi. The most important was the value of complete sincerity. So, Complete sincerity. Now, what is that all about? Why was why is complete sincerity so valuable? Because you know you see all these, uh, you know, movies where good cop, bad cop. One guy plays the good guy, another guy plays the bad guy. It's all an act. You know, what is what is this about? Complete sincerity in an interrogation. So you think you want to be emotional, right? And that that creates a sense of urgency. It might create a sense of fear, but it definitely, well, you want to communicate that this is significantly important. The, the problem is, it's not real. So, so what I realized was, I don't care about Rocky. I, I don't even dislike the guy. 
Okay. I'm not even mad. Maybe he killed some American soldiers. We're at war. That's what we do. I'm trying to kill you. You're trying to kill me. Why am I going to get mad at him for something I'm doing against this people? Right? And then at the end of the day, I can juice myself up and get emotional and think about my friends that I've lost, all that. I don't really care what he did. I don't really hate him. The sincerity comes from, but what is sincere is my desire to gather the intelligence. So I can remove all emotions and then work on the emotion, the desire to gain the intelligence. Through empowering my prisoner, it basically communicates to my prisoner, my emotions are true, but I'm going to help you in the and knowing that in helping you, you're going to help me. And that is how I don't have to fake the funk, right? I don't have to bring some emotion that I don't feel. And when you do that, you don't have to waste your energy trying to play a role. And these mm. interrogations, they go long. And then you're on mission after mission after mission. I mean, you're pulling 18 to 20 hour days. You cannot have to come up with this false, false sense of emotion. But there is emotion, but just be true to it. I don't care if this guy's killing us. What's his job? What's he got to do? Mm. But I do care about completing the mission. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it's, again, these are methods and techniques and, and, an approach that you're coming about just from do you know getting into the the almost like the art and the science of questioning someone that as you said was not part of any military structure you're talking about someone who is an insurgent who's not wearing a uniform and that's a whole different you know you're dealing with a whole different uh, kettle of fish here by the way i skipped right over it um what is the, the title of the book, right? Blacklist number one. What is the blacklist? Yeah, right? The people don't even remember, or maybe they didn't even know, but out there, out the rock, it was called the blacklist. And it was the deck of cards, one through 55. And it was called BL, blacklist one, BL two, Saddam's one, uh, Uday was two. No, Kuse was two. Uday was three. Uh, the secretary was four. Kimaglani was five. And it was going down the ranking of card structure. Okay. But we had to have a... Here's the thing. You, the reason I named it Blacklist number one is because when I arrived, they had gone so many raids, so many efforts to find Saddam Hussein. And the intelligence was always wrong. Well, I'm an intel guy. And what I started to realize really quickly, when I got there, they may, never used the word Saddam. The United States Army would not use the word Saddam. They would say BL1, Blacklist 1. Okay. Why? Because if you use the word Saddam and act like you knew where he was, they knew you were an idiot. Because you were going to ruin, you were going to make that commander look stupid because you were going to make them go on a raid where there was a false uh, location. And so as intel collectors, there became a fear Wow. To even say we're after Saddam. They're like, oh my gosh, there's the idiot that's still looking for a leprechaun. And I'm telling you, this thing's so important that when, when you when you send a, a unit 
who find Saddam and he's not there, they come back and they want some answers. And you know what? As intelligence officers and collectors, it was one of those things like easier, not just it's just better not to give them false leads. Right. Because I'm doing my best. And so I just thought it was even ironic. They didn't use the name Saddam. Man. And, and barely want to use BL1. If you said BL1, Blacklist One, <laughs> you had better get ready for some ridicule. Man, unbelievable. All right. Another quote. As I started refining my own method of questioning, I began to realize that it was different from the standard operating procedure of many other interrogators. That became especially clear to me when I participated in questioning the four prisoners we had rolled up in the Hadoshi raid. One of them in particular caught my attention. He was a former general of, in the Republican Guard and was well-connected to the Hadoshi clan. How was your method, Eric, of questioning different from the other interrogators? Well, the other interrogators at this house, I mean, because this is a big Hadoshi, right? Hadoshi is the focus. They brought in these CIA agents, and mm -hmm. I guess these guys thought they were interrogated. Maybe they were. I don't think so. But they would go in, and us. it was like they were on some TV show, right? It was like, we know about you, too much. So, so. <laughs> and I'm like, huh. So these are the best dudes we got. I don't know somebody. I'm like, you know what? I'm not saying I know. I didn't bounce it on yet. But I at least could watch them and go, they don't have a strategy. They don't have a plan. At least I have a plan. And I know they can't. And then I started doing interrogation, and they sat and watched me. And they were so mad. They were so infuriated. And they were like, you're getting everybody mixed up. You're zigzagging around. And I'm like, yeah, I am. I, I, you know, I don't care if you're traveling. It's clear to me, I do things differently. I'm not saying yours is right. I'm not saying mine's right. I can watch yours and tell you don't know what you're doing. I at least have a plan. Wow. Un unbelievable. Um, so, okay, here, here's another one. So, quote, I start with the assumption that I don't know anything about the prisoner, that I have no idea what he might or might not be willing to discuss. So it's like you said before, blank slate, I start from scratch. So I just ask him about his life, the seemingly random details of his background. In my training, this was called building a timeline. We were taught to, we were taught to build these timelines in sequence but I didn't like to do it that way. Okay, so I, I get what you were saying about start fresh. I don't know anything, let's, let's start. It's what, it's what we talk about in the box, in the present. Um, and building a timeline though, why, why did you not like building that timeline and sequence? And I, I understand what you were talking about before. I mean, you somehow had a knack for keeping puzzle pieces in, in your brain somewhere. But why did you go against the grain on building the timelines and sequence? The prisoner would see where I'm going. Remember when I said, okay, who's your oldest brother and your next sibling and your next and your next? Well, that's the same. What's your job? They taught you in the, in the Army interrogation course. Get their employment. What's their job? What was their most previous job? When you had that job, what other jobs you had? Prior to that, what was your job before? Right? It's just like it's a reverse chronological order of everything in their life when you paint a picture. And I said, that don't make sense. I'm telling this guy what the, he sees me coming on some chronological order. He's got something to hide. 
he's going to know how to smoothly skip it, and I will not know that he lies to me. So I'm going to skip around and tie it together so it doesn't look like I'm skipping around and look like I'm having a random conversation. It's that simple. Yeah, I mean, you did say that confusion was your ally. That confusion uh, that uh, you you created you, because you didn't want him to you didn't want your um, your uh, detainees to suspect that you were you know that they were being caught. like for instance, you say you never ever asked the detainee to clarify a potential lie because you didn't want right. You you said confusion was your ally. Think about this. If I would have said to that one prisoner, I gave you an example. Yeah. I would have said, wait a second. I know for a fact you guys always ride shotgun for your older, older sibling. Wait, wait. Are you sure you were riding shotgun when you were, you were with your older brother going to that wedding? He would have said, oh. <laughs> I was driving. I was. You're, thank God. Thank you, Eric. Right? Like, wow. <laughs> you can't. Which is hard because when you're building this picture, you're like, did I mishear something? Like you've got to trust, which again, trust of details comes from the clarity when you gather the detail. You want to know what my secret sauce is? I do one thing. I clear my mind so clearly that when I'm painting this picture, there's nothing else in my world that gets away. You're like, how do you do this? If you clear your mind, it's amazing what you can focus on. And that's my game. You know, I got to tell you, that is, you know, the way the way you figured this out, it, it's completely um, uh, counterintuitive because in that instance, I and I consider myself a decent questioner. I've been in sales my whole life. I lead sales teams. I, I teach that kind of thing. But if I'm in your shoes, I catch someone in a lie. I'm <laughs> I'm like, bang, I got you. And and you're like, no, 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 no. Actually, and you just explained why that's a bad idea. That's that's absolutely uh, just I mean, that's really enlightening. OK, so further down the line, while you're in uh, Tikrit, uh, here's a quote for you. The task force reeled in a big catch. His name was Rashid Abdullah, and he was one of the top inner circle bodyguards. He was a Marafik, if I'm saying that correctly, uh, which meant that he would that he commanded the most elite Hamaya, those charged with personally protecting Saddam. Along with Rashid, the raid had rolled up two of his brothers and several of his sons and nephews. So you say, listen, Eric, I'm sorry, listen, Eric, Jack said to you as the detainee as the detainees were brought in for interrogation. Jack said to you. These guys are responsible for the deaths of a lot of our men. They are bad dudes, Eric. Do not let them talk their way out of there. Now, this was another area where you differed from other interrogators, okay? Because you said, I really didn't care how bad a prisoner he was or who he was supposed to be. It didn't matter to you that he was a bad guy. Now, you know, again, you're just thinking like, okay, I got to really, you know, this guy's a bad guy. I got to do whatever it takes. You're like, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Bad guy, good guy. Why? What good do those emotions do? Was I somehow going to work harder 
if I knew he was a bad guy, I, I take pride in knowing I've given the same effort 2,700 times. I don't care if it's the guy that took us directly to Saddam Hussein or some Taliban nobody from southern Afghanistan. I do not care. My job is to get cooperation. So I don't need motivation, right? Okay. So now we're supposed to stir up emotions. Wait a second. I must control all of my emotions. I've got to have every emotion. I can cry. I can laugh. I can be confused. I can do anything I want. But I have to have better have complete control so that I can pull those out of the bag anytime I need them. If, if I'm going to get into their mind, I cannot have some false emotion. I, 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 it just didn't make any sense to me, right? Like, or what? And the thing is, it cracks me up. Sometimes interrogators, it's because I'm an interrogator, they get this macho feeling. Like, bad man, you don't mess with him. I'm like, this guy's a prisoner. He's handcuffed. There is no less threat on the planet than that prisoner. I don't know how bad people think interrogators are. What, what makes us bad? Awesome. Like, you can you get him to talk? You get the intelligence? That's my, other than that, you want to be a bad dude? Go be one of those operators. Gotcha. That's where the bad dudes are. That's where the legit hardcore. I'm just brain hardcore, right? Gotcha. And that's that. Yeah, I accept that. I'm not walking around like I'm some tough guy. And I'm like, why are we trying to do this? This is a prison. So, with that said, let me ask you this question. Given your propensity to easily being able to remain emotionally neutral. Would you actually be able to interrogate someone that had done you personally wrong? Or would you, would you, are you capable of putting your emotions in check when it really affects you, when you actually do have emotions about someone who has wronged you personally uh, or someone close to you? Would you be able to interrogate someone uh, who committed a crime against someone you love, for instance? Well, I don't know. Uh, that would be speculation. Okay. Um, it would definitely be a different ball game. Somebody messed with somebody in my family. So it'd be speculation. I can say okay. this. I do lose it. And, and when I say lose it, I think it's stupid. The thought of smack around a prisoner, torturing a prisoner, or killing a prisoner, because that, you smack around a prisoner or beat him up, that doesn't really hurt him. But I will say this. I get emotionally charged when I've done an interrogation. I've done everything I can to, to, to give a compelling argument, to give them everything they need, and they still don't cooperate. Because now you've affected me. Now I couldn't do my job. And I make no bones about it. They will ask, what should we do with this prison? And I tell them, throw away the key. Throw away the key. Now, did they do something? out there to warrant throwing away the key. I don't know. My job is not to figure out what they did out there. My job is to figure out what they gave me in here. But in here, whether they can give me this much intel or this much intel, when they don't give it to me, I assume they're potentially dangerous. So I guess internally, I justify it by going, 
yeah, we're going to throw away the key on this guy. Because if he goes back out there, he still has loyalty. I probably ratcheted up a little bit on their on their on their sentencing on what I tell, you know, sort of the determining factors of do we send this guy to Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo Bay. So mm-hmm. I've let the emotions get to me, but it's just it's it's when you fail to do the mission, when you fail to give the intel. I got nothing for you. And, and then I'm gonna give it up on you. And, and I, I'm very sensitive to the fact that the prisons get overcrowded. I'm very sensitive to the fact that the capture of an innocent person can instigate more animosity and create more insurgent fighters against them. So I definitely only do it not when I think they're stupid or they don't understand what I'm trying to create. But when they intentionally don't give it up, I say, that's a level of loyalty. We can't let that out. Right. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, so, all right. So you question this. Um, you know, you, you got this guy, Rashid Abdullah, right? Um, you know, again, bad dude, but you don't care. You're going to do your job. You're going to do it the way you, now you know is actually yielding you results. But here's a quote for you. I, I still needed to find a way to bring it all together, to link the suspects and the sources and the separate players that you were uncovering. Maybe it was all nothing more than a freelance network of insurgents working on their own, but maybe, maybe not. Maybe someone was running the whole thing. So at this point, there was no suspects as to who was in charge of the insurgency or if there was even a leader to the groups responsible for the uprising, the shootings, the IEDs. This is amazing to me that at this point, no one that no one knew like whether or not this thing had a structure. No one knew if there was a leader, uh, you know, to me, that's that that right there is amazing. And, you know, it, what you what you're what you're starting to, I guess, uh, uncover is that. Really, you're at the, the ground level of something that no one knows. Real, I mean, they won't even mention the damn name Saddam. And, and you're on the ground floor of this trying to put all the pieces together. And, um, you know, at, at every turn, you're trying to, you know, hang on to the opportunity to take this to the next level, to find out who the leader of the insurgency is, to, to make, you know, you're, you're maybe even starting to dream about Saddam at this point. Uh, but like at any moment, you could be sent back to, to Baghdad. So here, here's this. Listen to this. So the, the first Delta Force team you were working with, their deployment is up at this point, and a new unit of spe- a, new, a new unit of special operators is brought in, and now you're the guy with the experience. All of a sudden, you're the guy now with the knowledge, and immediately they come to you for a rundown. So this must have been incredibly refreshing. It turns out that everything that uh, they have been briefed on regarding the high value targets turns out to be wrong. But your on-the-ground intel allowed you to piece together a diagram of who was actually in charge of the insurgency, at least who you – again, no one knew. The, the, these Delta Force guys are being briefed in completely the wrong way. They have no clue. But you're there on the ground, and you start to put together – you didn't even write it down at this point. But you started to put together a mental picture of who you thought might be in charge of the insurgency, guys like the Al-Muslits, especially Faris Yassin. Uh, Radman Ibrahim and Radman's brother, Muhammad Ibrahim, who you uncovered 
reported directly to Saddam. So now I'll quote you. When Kelly, the new intelligence analyst, and I finished the link diagram because they asked you to take what was in your head and put it down. Thank God someone you know, now was like, hey, Eric, put this together, right? He warned me to keep it out of sight. If any top brass should drop by for a visit, keep it out of sight. The priorities I had established were definitely not the same ones being worked everywhere else in Iraq. What was important to me was that Kelly and Bam Bam didn't reject them outright. Bam Bam was the commander of that Delta Force unit. Kelly just didn't want anyone else to know what we were doing. It was a legitimate concern. We might get shut down before we got started. Okay, Eric, explain this. I would have thought that the command would have wanted the intel from the guys on the ground as to who led the insurgency. Okay, I got to I gotta defend the, these operators, this team coming in, okay? Yep. There is a turnover of one team from the next. So eight guys come in, eight guys leave. There's a quick turnaround. You expect to get the intel yeah. from the intel analyst. So the intel analyst on the previous team was relying on the CIA agents that were living at that house. The CIA agents at that house, they're CIA, right? They're the top. I mean, how would you not follow them? I just felt like all of their leads were just wrong, right? But who am I to say? I just know they were running informants, people out there. That's I right. Was listening to prisoners. There's no history in our military where intel, the mission is driven by prisoners. So we can't blame anyone to go, gee, why don't you listen to the prisoners? Because they don't have an interrogation technique like this before. Who's, how, how is top brass supposed to automatically know we, we got an interrogator doing things completely differently, right? How are they supposed to know? Is it, you see, I think guys heard Joe, they don't know what they're doing. Right? Like, how are you supposed to know that? Wow. The team comes in and they say, wait a second, who are you guys? We're like, man, we don't know what's going on. And it doesn't mean we failed. It just means there's so much stuff. You could go to Baghdad. They didn't know what was going on. You could go to Mosul. They didn't know. It's not like anybody knew what was going on. Because when you can't find a high-value target, you can't say why. You just know he's not here. We don't know. We're three, two and a half years, or two years into the war in Afghanistan. Daddy found Bin Laden. We don't know how to find Saddam. We're not good at this. We found Uday and Kusay because some guy walked into the post and said, they're at my house. They gave that man a poly and said, he failed. Well, we're going to go check it out. Anyone? <laughs> oh, by the way, they were there. That's our strategy. So I don't blame anybody. I, and I certainly did not think that I was right. I just liked my strategy better because I talked to my prisoners. I knew they were telling me the truth. How do you expect anybody to believe? I was shocked when Kelly said, why don't you get this in a link diagram? If you die, this goes away. And I was like, wow. Yeah. That's so cool. You want to know what I think, right? Like, huh, I'm an interrogator. Nobody listens to interrogators. Wow. So I put it on the on the paper and they still were like, yeah, okay, we <laughs> understand, Lawrence. Two weeks later, the CIA agent at the house gets shot. He gets it's a little bitty frag of a 203 round, but they're, they're this, practice this, round. It's a complete miracle shoot. Like not miracle, it's a travesty, but he gets and it goes into his chest. 
and they can't find it. They send them to Germany for exploratory surgery. We don't have a CIA agent. And people say, what do you mean nobody thought Saddam Hussein was in to Crete? Lawrence, there were 50 CIA case officers in Iraq at that moment in 2003. They put one in to Crete. And when he gets shot, the CIA said, bam, bam, we're not giving you nothing. I mean, there's nobody there. The CIA was gone. And bam, bam goes, Eric, let's talk about this old guy. That's how that goes down. Oh, that's amazing. Wait a second. Is this Rod? That's how, yeah. that's Rod. So, so in the book, so you said, oh man, that's unbelievable. So Rod uh, got injured in that freak accident that, that you just mentioned. He was the case officer they brought in new case officer. Again, he gets, he gets shot, gets a fragment um, during a training exercise. Now he's out of commission and all of a sudden you're the man. Uh, all of a sudden they come to you now because like you said, they're not going to send another case officer. So it was now up to you to decide which targets the Delta force team was going to hunt down uh, along with. So quoted from your book, along with interrogating, you would now be running the source meetings and yes. it no longer mattered whether the information gathered came from prisoners as you preferred or informants as everyone else, as the CIA preferred as there would finally be a coordinated effort to gather actionable intelligence into Crete. Absolutely amazing. Look, you know, it's like, it's, this is almost like destiny because one, <laughs> you shouldn't even be there. You're there. You, 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 you don't have any training, but like you're a savant uncovering all these new methods. You, you know, no one knows who the power structure is. You figure it's like, this was, this was destiny. It's unbelievable. Okay. So, Here's the deal. I mean, okay. So you ended up getting Yassine. You also, who was, you also ended up, uh, you know, so you got your diagram at the top. Yassine's one of them. You also eventually get Radman. But before you could question Radman, he dies of a heart attack. But your sources and your instincts were all pointing to one guy on that, lit, on that uh, chart you drew out, Muhammad Ibrahim, as the top man the key to unraveling the insurgency and to perhaps capturing Saddam. But at every turn, it, it's like, this is why I say it should be a movie, because at every turn, it becomes an uphill battle to interrogate the people linked to Ibrahim. It, it, it appeared that <laughs> there was so much resistance to bringing in anyone other than the names on the blacklist. So, you, you know, how you, you, however, you saw the benefit of questioning those who are linked to the high-value targets the family, the friends, the business associates. Why was there so much resistance to go, even though now you're in charge of who they should go on hits, even the, the, the Delta Force guys, God bless them, but they're like, they realize that, hey, you know, we're supposed to be going out after the HVTs, the high value targets. We're supposed to be going after the deck of cards. But like, you're like, guys, trust me on this. Forget the deck of cards for a moment. We got to go after the people that know the deck of cards. Why was there so much resistance to going after people that could lead you to the key players, the black? You know, I, I, I don't mind if, if you if you if you had that feeling. If you bring me an exact quote from that book, I'll back it. I wrote that book. I wrote every word of that book. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like Bam Bam and that team were resistant 
there were just pressures on them that people right. have to understand. There are political pressures. And when you're this little bitty Delta Force team and Tukri and Saddam's not there, yeah. and you've got an interrogator who should not be leading Delta Force, not leading, but giving the intel to go on raid. You're saying we're putting the most expensive, awesome soldiers in the world out there based on information from prisoners, not in 2003. It was not until after the capture of Saddam Hussein that that became in vogue, right? So this is like, whoa, bam, bam, there's nobody there. And you're putting these guys in a lot of trouble, potentially, from stuff from interrogating. What? And then, how many times, Lawrence, during that book was, we went here and the and the bad guy wasn't there. And That's we right. went here and he wasn't there. So now, bam, bam's going, yep, we're going to keep doing it, even though it's never right. Imagine the pressure from above. They basically wanted Bam Bam to chill out, sit at home, sit, sit in the, at the house in Tikrit and just chill. And he's going off of prisoners that now are not even on my link diagram in terms of bad guys. They're family members and friends and cousins and drivers and business partners and friends. And he's putting these guys out there based on family connections. <laughs> like, can you imagine the pressure? And yep. so I want to be clear. I didn't think Van Dam was resistant. I thought he was the most aggressive commander I've ever worked for. And if the, I didn't say that in that book, I don't even know where in that book I said Van Dam was resistant. No, no, I, not I at all. Like you no, 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 not even close, right? Um, yeah. you definitely, Bam Bam definitely comes off as the guy that is your, you know, that trusts you with Kelly. They're your biggest allies and they take the biggest risks. But, but I'm asking the question as a civilian who makes assumptions as to, you know, reading a book like this, it, it seems so obvious and, you know, politics, bureaucracies, and the people that the, the special operators who I have undying respect for have to deal with in order to do what they know is right is constantly uh, a barrier to success. And it, takes and, and it takes guys who are willing to take risks like the Delta Force team, like Bam Bam, like Kelly, like you. And by asking you a question like that, okay. What you're doing is you're putting everything in context, everything in context for the audience and painting a picture that shows just how unlikely what is about to unfold actually is. How unlikely it is that given everything you've just said, you're right. They're going to, you know, how much more can they risk? All the pressure that's on them. How many times can they turn up a dry hole? How many times can they, they go after someone that's not a high-value target and keep going, right? That just points to the fact that this is a one-in-a-million shot. <laughs> that what's about to unfold actually takes place. So here's the key. So you want – here's a quote, Right. And by the way, the resistance, I mean, comes from the top, right? Because they can't, they can't take the risk because they're, gonna, they're getting pressure from the top to not follow their instincts, but to go after 
the unattainable uh, without understanding that you've got to do the groundwork and connect the dots in the muck and the mire and in the weeds and go after the people that you would least expect in order to go after the big guys. That's the resistance comes from the top. But like I said, this this paints the picture for the audience because the fact is you persevered and you convinced Kelly and Bam Bam, right? You per you eventually had a chance to interrogate a guy you were going at, you wanted to uh, go after, which was Ibrahim's driver, Basim Latif. But that was an extremely sensitive, politically uh, charged risk because he was the cousin of the governor of Tikrit security chief. Yeah. And yet you and the, the, the Delta Force team, you take that risk, you have him arrested of all things, which is insane. Right. Which is like, man, if we have him arrested and we get this wrong, if he cannot get us to Abraham, we're done here. All of us are done. Uh, so this is where, I'm, you know, my my recognition of what uh, what Bam Bam and Kelly uh, put on the line, because it could have gotten them removed from the entire operation and you would have been thrown out of there. It would have been a done deal. Why were okay, you I, I've deployed? I've deployed eight times. Bam Bam arresting that guy at that moment. It's the most courageous thing I've ever seen anybody do on a planet battlefield. So, okay. Why? So the question is, why was he willing? Why were you all willing to take that risk? Knowing how much resistance was coming from the top, knowing that everything was on the line here. Why were you willing to take the risk? I think Bam Bam was really smart. I think he's a genius. He knew I was doing this in a very cerebral manner. Okay. He knew every time we captured somebody, I was getting up there. I told him, I said, I got to have this driver. Well, we find out this driver is the cousin of the head of security of the governor of Tukri. Quick political rundown. The governor of Tukri is appointed by the Americans. Tukri, everybody hates America. They're all cynics, Saddam people. We okay. have this puppet governor of Tukri. He's, everyone's going to kill him. The only reason he stays alive is because he is a head of security that runs this elaborate security operation to keep our puppet governor alive. The head of security happens to be cousins to the driver of the one man, Muhammad Ibrahim, the guy I thought to take us to Saddam. So I tell Bam, I'm like, we gotta even get the driver. And Bam was like, I said, I gotta have him. And Bam Bam looks at Kelly and says, Kelly. Call U.S. forces. Tell him to call the governor. Tell the governor to have his bodyguard bring in his cousin to the governor's mansion, and they did. The governor bodyguard. We go to the bodyguard's office. The the body the, the head bodyguard for the governor. I promise his office was bigger than the governor. And he brings his cousin in, Boston Latif, who's the driver of the and the bodyguard for the government, most important friend the United States has in this entire war, looks at Bam Bam and says, I assure you, my cousin, Boston Latif, will not lie. And therefore, there is no reason that he won't be staying with me today. Right? I'm like, and Bam Bam looks at me and he goes, show yours. Oh, boy. And I, and I, 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 I prepped Bam Bam. I said, I'm going to catch him in lies. I said, if I catch him in lies, I promise he can take me to Muhammad Ibn. And I didn't have much time. I couldn't go three hours. I had like 30 minutes. And I started asking questions quickly. This driver 
had the confidence that he, you know, he's here with his cousin. And it's scared. You're in the governor's mansion. So he'd answer my questions. I caught him in a lot. And I've done it the same way as I always do it. But this time I'm like, are we tracking? Well, he's done it to do some of the smartest guys you ever know. And Bam Bam might be the smartest guy I've ever met. But they were tracking. And I caught him in a lot. And I'm like, I turned to Bam Bam and he, he just looks at me like, shoot. Not shoot, like, well, we got a decision to make. So Bam Bam walks, we go outside the office, and he brings the whole team. He's like, what do you want to do? And they, all of them were like, take him. Let's take him. Bam Bam walked in front of there, looked at the head of security and said, Chief, cousin lied to us. He's coming with us. Oh, man. And I'm telling you, we just rocked the political planet. And we took that bodyguard, we left, and Bam Bam looks at me and he's like, man, we need to go fast. All right. So amazing. Amazing. You make the, you arrest the guy. Huge risk. What happens next? How does that risk pay off? I interrogate the driver. Took me six hours. Six hours. I got him to break. And I mean, completely snap, crackle, pop. He looks at me and he said, Eric, I'm the driver for Muhammad Eden. I drive all the money. He said, it's millions of dollars every single week. And I deliver the money throughout the Sunni Triangle to the insurgent commanders. And I deliver all the orders for every single attack since this war began. He said, I'm taking all orders from Muhammad Ibrahim. And he said, he's taking all orders from Saddam. And I'm like, for the first time, I thought, okay, maybe Saddam Hussein is here. Wow. Maybe I'm not crazy. This is like December 1st. So I'm going to be captured on December 13th. This is December 1st. I got there in July. This is the first time I'm like, shoot, this might be real, right? And the driver tells me, he said, Eric, I, he, he, he'll, he'll be at one of five safe houses, the bodyguard, Muhammad Eden. He goes, I dropped him off. One of these five safe houses every single night, he gives me the location, tell Bam Bam, Bam Bam, says, all right, we got to we gotta raid all five. One night, we raid all five. No Muhammad Ibrahim. But at this point, we're rolling. I've got this interrogation technique figured out. I can get these guys to talk fast. As he brings them in, I do interrogations. Bang, 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 you have us take the prisoners to the prison. They live in our house. Right. <laughs> it's a full-blown 24-hour operation. And it goes from five safe houses. Then it goes to, a you know, as you remember, <laughs> the guy who owns the cement plant. Yep. Right, to this other best friend and his two sons, which led us to the town of Samara, where we had the sub-commander and Samara's little brother. And then they took him, the team straight to the rental house of Muhammad Ibrahim. Like, this is it. The fishing pond. No, this is before the fishing pond. Okay, this is, okay. This is where we're going to the rental house of Muhammad Ibrahim. This is my last night in Tikrit. I'm leaving at like midnight, one o'clock in the morning. They raid the rental house in Samar, and Muhammad Ibrahim is not there, but his 20-year-old son was. That's right. Now I've got, again, I'm, I'm not leaving that now. I'm going to leave next time. So I'm leaving 24 hours later. I get in there. I start interrogating this boy, and he says, my dad was here. Where you captured me, my dad was here two hours before. He left. How would I know where he was? I'm like, oh my goodness. But I kept talking to the boy. We connect. 
and he starts breaking down and telling how his dad, Muhammad Ibrahim, doesn't respect him as a man. And he starts crying. And he says, I wish we used to do things like we were when I was a kid, what you used to do. We used to go fishing. <laughs> I said, you know, your dad's kind of busy right now. Sorry he can't take you fishing anymore. You know, he's in the middle of a war. And the boy was like, no, they still go fishing. He just doesn't take me. I said, where do they go? He said, they fish along the Tigris River. I said, where? He said, they fish next to it. They, they just built a fish pond. They fish along the river next to the pond. And Lawrence, one of the early interrogations I did when I got to Crete, we captured Saddam Hussein's cook. And the cook tells me, being Saddam's cook is super easy. He just likes this one dish called Maz Goof. It's a fish dish. The cook said, I make the best Maz Goof in the world. I'm Saddam Hussein's cook. They built a fish pond during the middle of a war. Unbelievable. I told Bam and I said, we got to go to that pond. Now you're, okay. You're about to leave now. In 24 hours, you're, that's it. It's over, right? It's over. And like, you are on the cusp of figuring it all out, right? You're on the, you're on the cusp. Uh, and, you know, you. <laughs> so, all right. So what happens next? Because, all right, he, here's the thing. All right. It, 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 because it's mind boggling. Uh, you know, you, you're, you're going to be asked to give a debrief uh, to uh, Admiral William McRaven, McRaven, yeah. famous guy, right? You know, McRaven, Navy SEAL, you know, we're talking about, a, you know, um, uh, he was the task force commander at the time, but he eventually becomes the head of, of U.S. SOCOM, Special Operations Command. I mean, you know, this is a this is a big guy, but you're like on the cusp. So you f- you figure out the pond. What happens next? So I'm still in Crete. I told Bam Bam about the pond last night. They raided the pond, hoping it would, he would be there. The bodyguard was not there. They captured a couple of fishermen. But my flight, my helicopter's coming in, and Bam Bam ordered a Chinook because he's got to get all these prisoners living in this house because they told me, game's over, Bam Bam. We're done doing this interrogation thing. Great effort. We're going back to, they're going to bring in a CIA agent. They're going back recruiting informants. This whole project's going away. Okay. I get on the helicopter into Crete. They load up all these prisoners and they give me these fishermen and I go to Baghdad and my tour is up. And I have these two fishermen and I ask to interrogate them and then they say, well, you know, Admiral McRaven, he was the, the, the head of Iraqi Joint Special Operations Command. Right? McChrystal was the head of JSOC. Right. And then McRaven, Admiral McRaven, in charge of Iraq under General McChrystal. Right. So they said, tomorrow, give a briefing to Admiral McRaven. Next morning, I briefed Admiral McRaven. And he was awesome. He's like, that's fantastic. He said, I have got to go. He goes, about once a month, I've got to go to Doha Cutter, where the headquarters of the Joint Special Operations Command. And I've got to give a, a, a briefing on tracking down Saddam. He's like, I don't care if this is right or not. Sounds good. He said, Eric, bring that link diagram. You're getting on a plane with me December 13th at 8 o'clock. That's right. Cool. That was it. They had me go brief the Intel analysts in Baghdad for JSON, and they all fell asleep. 
they were like, but, but wait, <laughs> but wait, wait, wait. So, so, okay. So set the scene, right? Like, you know, they, you get the fishermen who are at the pond. You're, you know, you've, you've briefed McRaven at this point. He, he thinks it's brilliant. Okay. Yeah, he's he like, he's brilliant. He thinks it's something. All right. All right. Cool okay. It can be. He thinks it's briefable. Got you. So, you know, he, so now he wants to take you with him because he's got to go to Doha he wants to take you with him for his, he's got to do a briefing. He's like, let me take you. You can do this briefing with the link diagram, fill everyone in. So you're going to come with me in the morning. We're going to leave. You, the fit, you got the three fit. days. We're going to leave in three days. Three days. Okay. So you got, so now you got three days. You got the fishermen. What happens next? Before you I have to go. The, I interrogate the fishermen. And one of the, it took me 12 hours. One of the fishermen breaks and said, I work for Muhammad Ibrahim. He said, Eric, I catch fish out of the river. I put it in the pond. Every few days, they take, take fish out of the pond and leave. I said, where'd he go? Fisherman says, I'm a distant cousin to the deputy of Muhammad Ibrahim. The, my cousin and Muhammad Ibrahim were together. Eric, they got the address of my cousin and I's mutual aunt and uncle in Baghdad. I think they're hiding at that house in Baghdad. I'm like, how fortuitous. We're in Baghdad. I got the sketch, the map, pinpoint the location, and called the Bam Bam of Baghdad. Explained to him and said, yeah, we'll put it on the list. I said, what does that mean? Like, Eric, we're doing five raids a night. So I'll put it on the list. That's it. I I bring the, the, the intel analyst at head at that, you know, at that location at the buyout at the Baghdad International Airport. They all fall asleep during the briefing. They think it's stupid because Saddam Hussein's not in Crete. And if he's not in Crete, it doesn't matter if Muhammad Ibrahim came to Baghdad. Well, I never saw Admiral McRaven again. You don't just roll up into an admiral's office, right? Like, this doesn't work that way. So I never saw him. Okay. I called the main man of Baghdad and said, can you do this rape? My days came and went. And I'm sitting in the prison. One o'clock in the morning on December 13th, my flight leaves at eight, and the Bam Bam of Baghdad calls and said, We had a slow night. We did your raid. We did not find the bodyguard. We're bringing in the prison. And I'm like, Shoot. All right, that's it. Of course, that's it. They brought in the prisoners, pointed to them, and they said, One of them's. A guy named Muhammad Hadeda. Oh, shoot. Very important That's guy. A deputy. It was a good hit. That's a deputy. Right? Nobody on the planet's heard of Muhammad Hadeda. Turned to find out Muhammad Hadeda saying that executed the raid at that UN building bombing that, that you mentioned at the beginning. Yep. That's Muhammad Hadeda. That's the deputy. So I bring in Muhammad Hadeda. Let's start talking, talking, talking. And he finally breaks and says, Eric, Muhammad Ibrahim, when you came and raided the house last night and you guys captured me, Muhammad Ibrahim was sleeping in the bed next to me. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Jesus Did, the bodyguard? did they get the bodyguard last night? They didn't know it. This is a Baghdad team. They don't know who Muhammad Ibrahim is. Right. So I get all the prison, I start lifting up the hood. I knew what my man was supposed to look like. My bodyguard, Muhammad Ibrahim, was supposed to have a very distinct John Travolta chin. 
Okay. I'm it's three prisoners from the house. Boom, boom. Last prisoner lifted up before I got off the hood. There's that chin. And I'm like, gee, oh my, my God. God. So the four prisoners that they brought in, he, you know, he, oh, he wasn't there. Here's who we got. We got four guys. One of them, you know, high value to you, right? Muhammad Adair, right? Okay. Boom. But the other three who were supposedly nobodies, turns out it's Ibrahim. Now you got Ibrahim. Okay, so now you've got the guy that you think is the direct link to Saddam. The direct link. How many hours before you are set to leave with McRaven the Doha? I'm be at the airport in about three hours. So you got, <laughs> you got three hours left before the, again, this is a movie, uh, before you, you miss your chance at and who knows if when anyone's ever gonna find this guy, Saddam Hussein. Mm-hmm. You got three hours, you get Abraham. What happens? I went in and I took off the hood. I don't know if you remember this in the book, but I took very few clothes to to Crete. I thought I was supposed to be there one night. <laughs> the blue one, shirt. Blue shirt. I wore a blue shirt for all interrogations. I had on the blue shirt. And I t- took off the hood and I said, you're Muhammad Ibrahim. Man, I had been waiting to meet you. And he said, you're the interrogator in the blue shirt. He said, I've been waiting to meet you too. So I didn't know how it was going to go, but I told myself, just listen to him. Don't run your game. Listen to him. Let him, let him take lead. You'll go there. I don't mm-hmm. know where it's going, but let him take lead. I'll, I'll follow. And I said, the only thing we talk about is the exact location of Saddam. And he says, you give me way too much credit. And he smiled and he said, the president? I don't know where that guy is. And Florence, that gave me my first good lead, right? Like, you give me way too much credit. And he smiled and said, I don't know where that guy is. You got to understand, Muhammad Ibrahim, why did Saddam pick him? That, why? Saddam had hundreds of bodyguards. Why Muhammad Ibrahim? Muhammad Ibrahim. All those other bodyguards, they're, they're knuckle draggers, right? They're mafia. They use their position with Saddam against the locals to get whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Except for Muhammad Ibrahim, who's a fun-loving, whiskey-drinking, domino-playing bodyguard. He did not have an enemy in the world. Saddam Hussein was extremely intelligent. Saddam Hussein told everybody on the deck of cards, beat it, get out of Tikrit. That's why nobody thought Saddam was in Tikrit. We haven't found anybody on the deck of cards in Tikrit. Wow. And Saddam Hussein told all the bodyguards, get away from him because the public doesn't like you. When the Americans show up, the public will turn in those other bodyguards and they can leave. If those bodyguards know where Saddam is, those bodyguards will turn in Saddam. Not Muhammad Ibrahim. He knew no one would turn in Muhammad Ibrahim. Wow. And I said, I didn't give you any credit. I said, I didn't know who you were before I came to this country. I said, the 40 of your family members that he forced you to get involved in this insurgency that we've captured during this prison right now, they give you credit. They give you credit for ruining their lives. And he kind of rolls his eyes. He was not rolling his eyes at me, Lawrence. He was rolling his eyes at Saddam. He blamed Saddam. He blamed Saddam for being picking him. 
His life was ruined though. His family's life was ruined. His life was ruined. His life was ruined forever because Saddam picked him and he blamed Saddam. And I knew it. And there's peace information. I've been waiting. I've been holding on, right? I knew Muhammad Ibrahim's wife had a baby three months before this interrogation. He's a three-month-old baby. He's born during the war. I knew that baby and Muhammad Ibrahim's wife were living at this house right in the middle of the creek. It was like a kilometer and a half away from our base. I never went to that house. Where else are you going to go to find someone than their spouse? But I never went to the house. And I said, I told him, I said, I would never hurt that baby. What will he do for you now? What will he do for that baby? And that's when I got him. That's when I got him. And he starts tearing up, right? And he starts talking. He's like, I don't know if I should do it. And he's like, and that's when I'm like, oh my goodness. He said he couldn't. He's like, I don't know if I should do it. And I'm talking to him. And I'm trying to get it. And now the interrogators are like, your flight is leaving. You have got to be down there. Admirals are, he's like, Adam McRaven's on that flight. He's not waiting on a staff. So. Oh, man. Well, I take Muhammad Ibrahim to the cell. And I'm like, I'm gone. I need it now. And he's like, I can't. I got to think. I said, you're going to change your mind, man. I know how the story ends. He said, nobody knows that he's there but you and me. I need it now. He said, I can't. I said, when you're in the cell, you're going to change your mind. I said, I promise I will be gone. When I'm gone and you change your mind, you got to make somebody come talk to you. No one's going to come talk to you. They don't know you can do this. You're going to die in here, an old man. You're going to rot in here. And, I, and then I said, okay, when you change your mind, I said, you got to go crazy. I said, if you go crazy, someone will come talk to you. When you change your mind, you're going to take a cell, go nuts. I put him in the cell, and I left. They pick me up, driving across the flight line, and the senior interrogator asked me, what did you do to that prisoner? I said, I didn't do anything to him. Well, the interrogator, uh, the interpreter, your linguist wanted me to tell you that your prisoner is losing his mind. He's yelling and screaming and won't stop banging his head against the wall of his cell. And Lawrence, I knew my man broke. I jumped out of the truck, over the whole flight, ran across the flight line, got Muhammad Ibrahim out. And he said, I said, where is he? He said, we got to go. I need a, he goes, I need some generals in here. I said, there are no generals. Where is he? He said he's in Adwar. It's this little village south of Tikrit. It's like the farmhouse for Man and Kaisling and Justine. We got the sketch and the map. By this point, they are back. And they're like, we got to go. I said, the guy just broke. Like, man, we get on the plane. I said, you don't understand. <laughs> like, you don't understand. Go get on the plane. They said, call Bam Bam. I actually went to the office. I called Tikrit. Nobody picked up the phone. Oh, my God. And, and, and I said, call Bam Bam, tell him Muhammad Ibrahim's dying to take him to Saul. They're like, go, you're leaving. They took me on the flight. And this is the biggest question I always have. I got on that flight. I sat next to Admiral McRaven. And there's Lee with me. We're leaving at the same time. My gunny buddy. And Lee knows. Lee knows this happened. He believes that it, he, Lee's never with me. He was in Baghdad the whole time. But he knows I believe this. And Lee looks at Admiral McRaven and says, sir, Staff Sergeant Maddox just broke a man. He thinks he can take us to Saddam. And Admiral McCraven is either the jet washer. He didn't believe that if he was supposed to know, a colonel would have told him. Right. Not a staff sergeant and gunny. And he just kind of looks at me and he's like, you ready to give your brief? And he's holding the link diagram. And I'm like, 
I guess we're not staying. And we fly to Doha, Qatar. They land the plane and we walk off the back of the tailgate. And when we land, and there is a mob of Intel analysts grabbing Admiral McCrae. And they swooped him off. And I'm staying. I didn't think anything of it. I'm like, well, that's how, they, how you get treated when you're an Admiral. Mm. Special treatment. They took him 50 feet away into this little building. He comes walking out. He looks at me and he said, what just happened? I said, Mohammed, he was taking his kids to He just broke. And he said, we're going back. And his exact words, he goes, the hell if I'm going to be out of the country when we get the big guy. And I'm thinking, well, this is awesome. We are going. He said, you got to stay. I need you to get the briefing going. And I'm like, what do you do, right? The bottom, look, I mean, what a story. Um, no surprise at first that uh, Admiral McRaven didn't believe it because of what you said at the beginning. No one would even say Saddam's name. No one would even, you know, BL number one, blacklist number one. They won't even say that because if you say it and you, you take a chance, then you got a lot of explaining to do. And then, you know, your career is up the river. But you actually had the goods. You actually delivered. And days later, so so you give your briefing in Doha. Days later, you know. No, they, no, they, no. Okay, I just want to make sure you know. That night, they passed it on. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm going to say something else. So the okay, bottom line is, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, so, you know, they get Saddam, right? It, it That's it. They find him in his spider hole. Just as Ibrahim had said where he would be, you guys, you guys find him. Done deal. So days later, you are flown back to D.C. and summoned to brief the head of the DIA, Admiral Jacoby, where you were awarded the DIA's highest honor. You didn't even expect it, right? You give them a brief, and, you know, uh, uh, Admiral Jacoby said, you know, Jacoby says to you that this has never been awarded, uh, you know, to someone in the military, this award, but they're going to give it to you. And yeah. it's just, I mean, so obviously deserved from what you pulled off there when no one would have ever, I mean, like uh, you talk about against the odds, every step of the way of this story isn't against the odd story. Two days later, you were asked to go to the Pentagon to brief, the Secretary of Defense, they said, you got to go brief SecDef. And you're like, what's a se who's SecDef? What's that mean? They're like, you got to go, you, you're going to go brief Donald Rumsfeld and, and Deputy Secretary of Defense, Paul Wolfowitz. And later that, after you debrief uh, 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 Rumsfeld, that was an interesting one because you brief Rumsfeld and he's like, what the, you got, we need you back in Iraq. He's like, you, Finally, someone appreciated, you know, at a high, I mean, someone at the top of the chain in command realized what they had. They realized the, the level of intel that you were actually able to uncover. They're like, no, 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 get back, get back to Iraq. We need you there. Um, but you weren't done. They wanted you next. They, they, they got you over to the CIA to brief George Tenet, the director of the CIA. So you're like, you, for the next three months, man, you never, you didn't make it back to Iraq. You were on a whirlwind tour to bases around the United States, briefing everybody. And eventually, though, you made a stop at Fort Bragg 
where you reconnected with Kelly, who worked with Bam Bam on the Delta team. He was the analyst uh, from the task force. And, you you know, you guys had a very close relationship and you met you saw him at, at Fort Bragg a few months later and he told you he had a gift for you. Yeah. What was that gift? It was a cigar from Saddam Spider-Hole. So if we know Saddam went in Spider-Hole, they captured a half million dollars or $750,000 cash, a Glock pistol, and a box of Cuban cigars. Army gets the money. President Bush got the Glock. And Bam Bam's team and I split the cigar. Okay, so my first question is, have you ever smoked that cigar? Of course not. Holy smokes. That's amazing. So you still have the cigar. Yeah. What What do you treasure more, the, the Defense Intelligence Agency's highest honor or the cigar? Uh, I cherish the Legion of Merit. Legion of Merit. So you, there's a couple of, that was written by the Delta Force. That, that reward from the DIA was given to me by the director of the DIA. He said, Eric, I wouldn't check. No military guy's ever gotten this, but I'm allowed to give it to you here. Okay. The, the intelligence community, they gave you the National Intelligence Medal of Achievement. Awesome. Okay. Delta Force gave me the Legion of Merit. Wow. And I, I challenge anyone, tell me if they know a staff sergeant that has the Legion of Merit. I've never heard of it. And I'm not saying they're on higher awards. They didn't know what to do. I mean, when the intelligence community called my commander back in Los Angeles, they said, what do you give this guy? We, it, it's not like it was a Black Hawk Down situation. It, we would kill 80 people and he just found Saddam. What do you do? And um, Bam Bam told him, he said, as soon as we did it, he said, L-O-N, Leaves of America. Wow. So that's wow. what I'm most proud of. What, what an honor. What an honor. So, okay. Back to present day. So, so you clearly created a unique methodology and technique for eliciting information from people that no, no one else was going to break. I mean, the CIA couldn't break these, these, uh, these prisoners, these insurgents, you just, no one had a plan. No one had a strategy, but you created this technique, which direct, which everyone recognizes led to the capture of Saddam Hussein. Your formula shaped the future of intelligence collection for the military and civilian forces around the world. You now make these methods available to organizations. Take, take us through, you know, take us through the highlights of your program. I mean, what is it that you teach? I understand that you call this methodology, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand you call it empathy-based listening. Can you so please talk to me about what you're doing now, what your program's all about. Tell us about this technique and empathy based listening. So I teach business leaders, many who are in sales, and I, I tell them, I teach you to how to get people to do what you want them to do. Okay. And it's a misunderstanding because people think, oh, sales is about convincing someone that you have the best product at the best price and you're going to do what you say you're going to do and you, and, and you're in your quality, but leadership sales during communication, it's about trust. 
And what I teach people is there's a level of trust that most people do not know exists. Trust is, requires integrity. It does require that you do what you say you're going to do. But the real key to trust is when two people are about to go into some form, some partnership, when you're communicating with them, they're trying to figure out one thing. When we work together, is it about you or is it about me? And when you seek to understand, and the way you communicate says, I'm not worried about me. I'm not worried about my situation. Let me figure out what you need. Let's build this. Every statement, every word, every question is figure out how do we get this right for you? And when you do that, you empower the people that you're talking to. And they go, I want to work with you. I want us to partner. And it also empowers them to say, God, I trust that I can give you my idea. I trust that I can take challenges and make mistakes. And, and I will tell you, like, there is no stronger, there's no more powerful skill set that anyone needs than the ability to listen with empathy, to build trust in communication, period. That is exactly what I do for 2,700 interrogations. That's how I get these prisoners off the battlefield who wanted to kill me and go, Eric, I'm with you. And I didn't realize the need for this in the private sector. Mm -hmm. Capture Saddam, I kept my job. I, you know, I became that civilian interrogator for 10 more years, did 27. But I started getting asked by people, hey, we want to hear your story, we want to hear your story. Mm -hmm. Then they said, we want to know this thing. How do you do this? Right. And I'm like, oh, let me teach. And that's what I do. I teach this technique. I give keynote speeches. And I feel very, very, I feel impactful to help people become the most influential that they can become. So I, I really like what you said there about, about understanding the needs of the, the individual that you're looking to partner with or, or that is the, the individual that is involved in the deal with you, you know, a level of trust that most people don't realize. That resonates with me because of my history in, you know, in, in the world of professional selling. That is a very powerful thing. If you can engender trust, then you know pe people buy you. They do not buy your solution. They do not buy your product or your service. They buy you. They want to buy someone that they feel good about, that they can trust, and that they know is going to be there to help them. So uh, that really resonates what you said there. Coming from a different perspective, a guy that's an interrogator, understanding the human connection, put, put something else on the table for me. As a negotiator, let me hear as a negotiator how empathy-based listening, how your methodology establishes a, a strong position or a successful position as a negotiator. So I love helping training negotiations, right? I love okay. being brought in on high-end negotiations. Really, the key to negotiations is okay, both sides are nervous, and there's mm -hmm. really a low level of trust. Right. The problem is everybody plans so far in advance. We're going to do this, 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 and this. They don't listen when when the battle begins and we start throwing out. You know, I'll do this, but I'm not doing this. They're not listening to what the other side's saying. Right? They, I, I, I'm telling you, 
there's there's things about running feints, understanding leverage, all, all these things that are important with negotiations. But all of that is secondary to they will tell you exactly what move to make. Because everyone says, well, I'm gonna I want to go next. And when they say something, I'm gonna rebuttal. I want to, and it's like, I mm-hmm. quit the conflict. I'm not saying going on the same side. You must analyze what they're telling you. Give it, they give you the intel you need to win the negotiations. Problem is you're not listening to it because you're on such a fixed agenda. There's such a lack of trust. I, I'm not the one that says, you know, we're going to do these negotiations and we're going to find common ground and we're going to head in the right direction. Listen, I know what a kind negotiation is and I know what a tough negotiation is. Most of them can be pretty tough, right? I'm not saying we got to become buddy and mutual ground, but if you listen to them, they will give you the intel you need to make the right decision. And that, that is my biggest challenge to help people succeed in negotiations. Wow. I, I got to tell you, you come at this, um, both the aspect of negotiating and the aspect of selling, client interactions, um, and human communications uh, from a very, very unique perspective. And having to understand the human, the, the human connection between two different parties, both vying for different things, but maybe they're both vying for the same thing. They just, you know, it's just finding that, that common ground. You come at it from a very different place, a place that has proven to be unbelievably successful in the most high pressure. I mean, you talk about high pressure, every step of the way of your story is like insane, like next level, get it, get, you got to be at the airport and you know, McGraven's waiting for you and you're breaking the most important, the most important uh, uh, prospect, a detainee uh, suspect that anyone could ever break. And you've only got like, you know, minutes to do it. And so to, to hear you being involved in business, in coaching, in teaching this, uh, this methodology, this sensibility, this approach, it's a very powerful thing. So if someone wants to uh, bring you on board, hire you to coach their team, bring you on board uh, into a high-level negotiation to consult or uh, uh, to, um, uh, to work with them, to, uh, to be a part of their team in a high-level negotiation. If someone wants to bring you in to do a training session, how do they get in touch with you? You know, What's the best way for, for people to connect with you? Reach out to me, eric at ericmaddox.com. You can go on my website, ericmaddox.com. Get okay. me up on an email, eric at ericmaddox.com, info at ericmaddox.com. You know what? You get something lined up, all I ask, if we're going to do something, we got to make a difference. Our company motto is maximum positive impact. If we're going to do something, let's make a difference. Maximum positive impact, MPI. <laughs> I love it. That's fantastic. Eric, I got to tell you something. This this was, uh, you know, just a, a, a compelling conversation. Um, I loved hearing the story because I read the book and was riveted by the book. But you dropped some things that weren't necessarily in the book 
which made it which brought even more color to the to the story, made it more exciting. I really appreciate your time. Uh, you know, again, thank you so much for what you accomplished. Thank you for your service. You're, um, you know, you're just a, a, a credit to what took place when we went into Iraq uh, and everything that we strived for. I mean, to see that, you know, you were at the tip of the spear against all odds going in there, the least likely, the least likely to pull off the biggest case uh, of the war and uh, histor- and uh, absolutely one of the most historic takedowns uh, is is a fascinating thing. And there's a lot that can be learned from uh, from uh, your teachings, from your book itself and, and from your methodology. So I want to say thank you for coming on the Alpha Human podcast. Thank you for your service. Uh, absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Lawrence. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, my friend. Take care.